Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Previously on Three Little Words. He would sit on the teacher's desk, and I remember his leg was like so skinny. There's one thing to be thin. This was like really looking a little skeletal almost. 52-year-old Mick Morse finally shares his AIDS diagnosis with his three kids, but dodges questions of how he got it. Pride prevents him from leaving the school he leads in Spain to focus on his health. Think of the awkward questions people would ask. Jane moves to Florida with her two teenage daughters. She finds a job as a receptionist and thrives at Dr. Panessa's office. But then, on Megan's 17th birthday in February 1993, the unexpected happens. I'm looking and I'm thinking, who's that old man getting out of the car? Was Mick. You know, didn't recognize him. It was, you know, it was an effort for him to to move. To get his leg out of the car yeah. and to stand up. Yeah, it was just incredible. But um, then he ended up staying with Joanne and Ralph, and that was the end of the end. From the Tampa Bay Times, this is Three Little Words. I'm Austin Fast. In 1996, The Times published a 29-part series by staff writer Roy Peter Clark about a family dealing with HIV and AIDS. It was an innovative way of telling a compelling story about what, at the time, was still a controversial subject. 25 years later, we're reconnecting with the family and discussing AIDS today. This is Chapter 4, Permission to Live. February 17th, 1993. Somehow, inexplicably, Mick Morse has found his way home from Spain. His face looks sunken and pale. Cancerous lesions have sprouted across his back. Yet, Mick's traveling the United States. He's recruiting teachers for the American school in Bilbao, where he's headmaster. First, he weathers a blizzard in central Iowa. Then, another recruiting fair in Orlando. He's driven over to St. Petersburg, hoping for a party to celebrate his older daughter Megan's birthday. But his wife Jane wants no part in it. Megan was like, Mom, let's all go out for my birthday. And I'm like, Megan, I just can't. I just didn't have the energy, nor did I really want to. I said, but you go. Go with your... No, I'm not going to go. If you're not going to go. But Jane doesn't know her Aunt Joanne did what no one else dared to. She confronted Mick earlier when he was in town for Christmas. You know your terminal. I know your terminal, Joanne told him. Where are you planning on dying? Mick shrugged it off. 
but Joanne assured him he'd have a place to die with her and her husband Ralph in St. Petersburg. Now, Mick seems to have taken her up on that offer. Here's his son, David. That was the day where we all kind of got shocked with, you know, we, we learned a year or so ago that he was sick. Now he's not going anywhere. But he was still fighting. He was telling my Aunt Joanne and my mom and us, you guys are being ridiculous. Threw, by the way, a you know four-inch slit in the door because he wouldn't come out. He would just stick his head out and say, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to stay here. I have my return ticket. Aunt Joanne is having none of it. You're going to stay here. You're going to die in this house. You're going to be with your family, with people who love you. Don't even try. Yeah, you, you didn't fight Aunt Joanne too hard. Joanne's a hospice worker and has cared for AIDS patients before. They get a hospital bed, a wheelchair, bedpans, everything to make Mick as comfortable as possible. Joanne has anticipated this moment. A month earlier, on vacation in Mexico, she bought a tiny silver bell. Mick rings it whenever he needs anything. Yeah, this is what we use. Incredibly, Mick wheels himself to the telephone to call candidates he just met at those recruiting fairs. For three minutes, he'd act the part of a healthy superintendent of an international high school. You wouldn't know it, listening to him, and then afterwards he would just kind of crash and sleep, and then the next round. Even at death's doorstep, Mick keeps working. Last episode, Jane described the work ethic they'd inherited from growing up in rural parts of Michigan. But David says it wasn't just that. Three Little Words publication in 1996 helps David learn more about his father. He wanted to work till his dying day because I think that's what kept him alive in many ways. He loved it. I mean, he loved having an impact, I I think. After the first part of this story came out, there were quite a handful of people that he had impacted their lives when they were in the same high school with me that I hadn't realized. Uh, one of them was um, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill guy. Guido Liam was a great guy. I played soccer with him. And Guido sent me a little message basically stating that today I'm dropping off my kid at Chapel Hill because I'm an alumni because I only got in there because of your dad. The Morse kids, David, Megan, and Aaron, take turns visiting their aunt and uncle's house to check on Mick. Megan hates seeing him struggle. I remember his cheeks just being so sunken in, and he looked like a cadaver, honestly. Gray, just lifeless. And I hated seeing him like that. Like, I dreaded going over there. And then I guess it got to the point where he wouldn't even want to come out of his room. It was just too much work, too much effort. But also, I think he was ashamed of thinking that we would judge him if he did actually tell us who he was and what he wanted to really be. And I'd ask Aunt Joanne, so how's he doing? I remember one one comment Aunt Joanne was like, he's not doing too well. He's not even paying attention to the Michigan basketball game. And if he wasn't watching the Michigan basketball game, he was like, like he's not enjoying life anymore. Even though Jane's been working at Dr. Panessa's office just six months at this point, she's a quick study. She recalls the day a cancer patient comes into the office all gussied up in her wheelchair, her family crowding around her. You'd say, oh, Josephine, you look so beautiful, and, you know, how are you doing? And she'd say, Jane, I just want to go. I'm done with this, but my family won't let me. 
Some people call St. Petersburg the lightning capital of the world. All summer long and other times of year, blue-black thunderclouds roil the heavens over Tampa Bay. On the evening of March 3, 1993, distant rumbles of thunder reach Joanne and Ralph's house near Eckerd College. Megan is across the street at a college fair. Aaron's watching TV, safe and dry from the falling mists outside. David joins her, leaving Jane alone with Mick. She reaches out to grasp his hand and thinks it's the first time she touched Mick that way in years. I don't know if I forgave at that particular time. Maybe I did. And and in some ways, you know, again, you can look back and say, woulda, shoulda, coulda. Um, but I did tell him, you know, it's okay to go. Because Aaron, and I went into this big spiel, Aaron's going to be great. You know, she's fantastic at this and that. Megan, she'll come around. (laughs) She'll be fine. David, I'll be fine. You can go. Maybe this is just me, but I think you can almost smell when a person is going to die. There is a odor. What comes to mind is kind of a musky odor. And I remember just kind of all of a sudden losing my breath and crying and went out of the room and David and we went outside And I said, your dad just died, I think. And I just went outside in the yard and just, you know, trying to catch my breath. I remember walking into the apartment and I just had this weird feeling, me being me and the rain and the thundering and the storm and I knew my dad was on his last leg I wasn't shocked when my mom told me so that's how I found out but I remember having a really vivid dream with him either that night or shortly after I was laying in my bed sleeping and I felt the mattress like go down like someone sat down next to me because I could feel the actual indentation of weight in a body on on the mattress. And I felt his presence. And I just, it was calming. It was, and then I open my eyes and I look up. And of course, there's nobody there. When doctors diagnosed Mick Morse with AIDS, sadly, there wasn't much else to do but wait to die. Today, there's still no cure or vaccine, but it's not a death sentence. Another exam room. This is our bigger room, so usually when we have somebody come in with, you know, a family member, we use this room. This is our lobotomy lobotomy room here. Uh, This is where Sheila hangs out. That's the other... Dr. Bob Wallace is showing me around his private practice in St. Petersburg. It's a squat, yellow brick building along Central Avenue that he calls Love the Golden Rule. 
do unto others as you would have done unto you. What's wrong with society is that no one's being taught to respect one another. And it falls back to the golden rule, and that's what our clinic is all about. Dr. Wallace bought a private practice in the late 80s and switched over to full-time HIV care in 1996. What sticks out most to him from that time are the funerals. He'd gather with other HIV specialists for support. There was one woman who said she just wouldn't go to funerals. She couldn't handle it. And I said, I go because you have to close a chapter before you can open another one. Mick Morse's Spanish doctors prescribed him AZT, the first drug approved by the Food and Drug Administration to treat HIV in 1987. Mick had already been taking it for a couple years when he came to die with his family early in 1993. Unfortunately, AZT proved incredibly toxic for some people. But we didn't have anything else. On our tour of the clinic, a three-foot-tall poster yeah, adds a splash of color to one of his white-walled exam rooms. Um, is this the chart that you were talking about yes, with the drugs? Yes, this is one that has all the drugs on it. The positively aware HIV drug chart, it reads across the top. There's capsules of all colors and tablets pressed into ovals, circles, a diamond, even a strange, vaguely wedge-shaped one. 51 names I can't even start to pronounce. Dr. Wallace points down to the 14 so-called legacy drugs in exile at the bottom of the chart. In combinations. Aptivus is tipranavir. Crixivan is indinavir. The Inverase was sequinavir. This was actually the first one that was approved. This one, when it first came out, you had to take six capsules twice a day, and one of the components was castor oil. So you can imagine what the side effect was. People couldn't even leave their houses. It was that bad. As more people started having toxic side effects to AZT, the FDA fast-tracked approval for the first of a new type of drug in 1995. We got one protease inhibitor approved with only six months of data, which was absolutely unheard of in the FDA. It normally takes five years to get a drug approved. Protease is an enzyme that wears lots of hats in our bodies. Maybe one of the most important is helping digest our food. But when white blood cells are infected, protease helps assemble pieces of the virus into new HIV cells that spread further. Protease inhibitors block that process. And we found that if we put it in combination with two other drugs that were already available to us, we called it the cocktail, that people survived. They survived, but at a cost. People had body dysmorphic changes. People developed on their neck what we call a buffalo hump. We found that they were associated with the development of diabetes. They raised cholesterol and triglyceride levels. But back at that time, we weren't worried about long-term complications. We just wanted people to live. It was sad. It was really sad. But that, these are all drugs of the past. Integrase inhibitors are the ones that are in the first-line recommendations for treatment. What is that? The inter- integrase. Integrase? The virus integrates into the, the human genome. And by integrating itself, then that cell becomes a factory to make more viral particles. Integrase inhibitors block the enzyme called integrase, which is what's necessary to drive that process. So we're basically pulling the gasoline out of the engine, keep it from running. So fast forwarding then to today, you know, you're describing all those funerals for your patients that you had to go to. Mm-hmm. Um, does that still happen? Do you still have some we, patients? In the last three years, four years, we've only lost three patients. 
And I feel like I have a fairly normal family practice. It's just that we go over lab work a little more often. And that, just to give you an indication of how things have changed, they now recommend when you have a patient who's been stable for two years, you do a CD4 count once a year. Which checks how many disease-fighting white blood cells patients have. And you do a viral load twice a year where we used to do them every two to three months on our patients, do both. I just realized we haven't even talked about viral load. Um, mm-hmm. Can you describe the, with the concept there, what you're looking for? It's and- a blood sample, and it tells us how many copies of the virus there is in a unit of blood. Normally, when people first come in and they're not on treatment, their viral loads will be real high. But with the medications we have today, I have very, very few people who aren't undetectable. If medicine gets an HIV patient's viral loads down so lab tests can't even detect them in the blood, they can't be spread to another person. Is that true? It's been unequivocally shown. Uh, It took years to get compile the data. Here's Dr. Anthony Fauci again from the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases speaking at a conference in 2019. When a patient's HIV levels are undetectable, it means it's just about close to impossible as you could possibly get, that that person will not transmit the infection to someone else. That's really very critical because that dramatically diminishes the stigma associated with HIV because there is the external stigma and there's even the self-imposed stigma of someone who's infected feeling that they may be dangerous or harmful to the community, and they're not. Get on therapy, you'll save your life, and you won't infect anybody else. And if you're not, but practicing risk behavior, then get on PrEP. Pre-exposure prophylaxis. We know that it's 99.9% effective in preventing AIDS from being transmitted. What Dr. Wallace is describing, PrEP, was first approved by the FDA in 2012. PrEP is basically when people without HIV take HIV medicines daily to lower their risk of catching the virus. It's meant for people at greatest risk, those gay or straight who sleep with multiple partners, people with an HIV-positive partner, and people who share needles to inject drugs. Unfortunately, particularly young men of color who have sex with men, they don't seem to have the fear of getting the virus, and they don't have the access to get the PrEP that the other patient population has. So that's a population that's being hit exceptionally hard. A stunning study from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention predicts 50% of black men who have sex with men may be diagnosed with HIV in their lifetimes. That's one of every two. For Latino men who have sex with men, it's one in every four. Looking at the risk among white men who have sex with men is still scary. One in 11 may contract HIV in their lifetimes. But those are better odds than the flip of a coin that black men face. The figures still show a racial divide when they factor in straight men. Sorry for all the numbers, but stick with me. Less than one-tenth of one percent of all white American men may catch HIV during their lifetimes. But among all black men, it's five percent. It's astronomical. I happen to go to an all-black church. I'm the only white member of the church. There's still an issue about being gay, which is not acceptable in many levels of the culture. And when we see that, they're even more afraid if someone has HIV or AIDS. So I have my work cut out for me in the church. 
As the AIDS epidemic continues in 2021, it's not just Black and Latino men at higher risk. It's also Black women, particularly in the South. When you would go into the AIDS clinics in southern Alabama, southern Louisiana, and Mississippi, it was mostly young women of color who were there. And that was very frightening. These these young women are coming in with full-blown AIDS, and they're only 25 years old. As more people come out as transgender, we're also learning that community is disproportionately at risk for AIDS. Dr. Wallace mentions a research study with transgender women in Fort Lauderdale. Two-thirds of the participants report being HIV positive. Prostitution is very common. They can't afford to pay for their hormones. They can't get jobs. They can't get social service benefits. So they tend to trick a lot. And the common thing of many of them was that many of their johns were men from the suburbs who came in to the city just because they were looking for something exciting and different. Literally every person that I've spoken to has said there's just this cliche that AIDS is not a death sentence anymore. I feel like it's just echoed over and over and over again. I mean, it's true, right? It's an important statement because it is true. Mm -hmm. It is not a death sentence. We tell people, you know, you will live a normal life expectancy if you continue to take care of yourself. Unfortunately, Dr. Jeffrey Panessa says not everyone takes care of themselves. He's the cancer specialist who hired Jane Morse as his receptionist. He points out one major roadblock is people having no insurance or being underinsured. Many people, even those with decent-paying jobs, skip checkups and treatment because copays are too high or lab tests aren't covered. Then there's the history of medical mistrust caused by scandals like the Tuskegee syphilis study, which lasted until the early 70s in Alabama. Hundreds of black men were promised treatment for their disease, but doctors were actually studying the health effects of non-treatment. Here's Dr. Panessa. Back in the 80s and early 90s, there was a dramatic push to test for HIV. And they were doing it at all of the welfare sites. They were doing it at gay bars. They were doing it at needle exchanges, everywhere they were doing it. Because you can test for HIV almost instantaneously. A lot of it now is individual responsibility. Testing is available free at the health department. It is done confidentially, and no one is going to be using that information for your employer or what have you. It's all a matter of changing perception. So it's a compliance issue. It's a trust issue. It's a surveillance issue. All of these things lead those communities down a different path. The only way for HIV to decrease in its spread is if you receive therapy for it. If you develop HIV and you never take treatment, you're living in the 80s. Three Little Words will be right back after this short break. When Jane Morse's husband dies, she can only manage a terse entry in her journal. Mick died, she writes. She adds the numbers 3393, the third day of the third month in the third year of the ninth decade. Born in 39, died in 93. Like those numbers, she thinks their marriage has been flipped around and divided. 
Around midnight, two men arrive to haul Mick's body off for cremation. Later, Uncle Ralph brings Mick home. His ashes poured in a plastic bag, placed in a beige cardboard square you might confuse for a shoebox. Jane thinks it's important to host a memorial service to start the healing process. She's startled by the response from Mick's older brother, the one who nonchalantly suggested iced tea when Jane shared Mick's diagnosis. He wants to just put all this behind them. Despite that, Mick's two sisters and younger brother head south to attend, along with Jane's kids, some former students, and a few of Jane's friends. After the service, Jane doesn't know what to do with Mick's ashes. She carries them home to her apartment, to her bedroom. She stashes them in the closet, thinking of all Mick left unsaid. A year passes, and that box doesn't move. On the first anniversary of Mick's death, Jane decides it's time. Around 10 o'clock that night, almost the exact hour of his death, Jane and her children David, Megan, and Aaron head to Passagrill. They find the concrete pier marking the far southern tip of St. Pete Beach. Megan reaches into the little cardboard box to toss a handful of Mick's chalky ashes into the ocean. She whispers three little words. I miss you, I love you, and thank you for everything you've given me. Telling him that I missed him and hope that he was happy wherever he was. Jane watches her young adult children say their goodbyes. Unlike Mick, Jane Morse has come to St. Petersburg not to die, but to live. She felt betrayed, but she stands there gazing at ocean waves not as a victim. Jane's the survivor of a life-changing experience, and she's ready to share that with others. Jane wraps her arm around her younger daughter Erin, who's now 16. Erin reflects on some of her favorite memories of her father, weekend soccer games and trips to the grocery store in Brazil. And then on the way home, we'd stop by McDonald's and he'd say, don't tell your mother we just went to McDonald's, so that type of thing. Just like football. American football is here, it's everywhere, it's in your face. That's kind of how soccer or the other football (laughs) was in Brazil. Actually, I would say you're playing soccer is how this story even came about. Oh. Do you know that? Yeah, 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 yeah. I used to play with Roy's daughter. Lauren, yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever thought about that in it's a way. Just saying, no. It's funny how it all kind of, how everything connects or how things get started. She just, I think she wanted a story out there just to help her and help others realize that stuff happens and things things can turn out okay, and they did turn out okay. When Jane moves to St. Petersburg, she quickly strikes up a friendship with reporter Roy Peter Clark and his wife Karen. They chat on the sidelines of their daughter's soccer games, and Karen happens to work in a radiology office close to Dr. Panessa's. You know, I felt like I could trust them. You know, you could talk to them, you could tell them things. But we were at breakfast, and Roy being the writer and everything, I said, you know, this, yeah, I've got a story. Everybody has a story. I am convinced everybody has a story. Roy never met Mick. No. Um, As a journalist, you know, how do you tell a story about a person without Mm -hmm. talking to them and allowing them the chance to, you know, answer your questions? Was that something that ever gave you pause as you were going through this project with Roy? Mm -mm. Why not? Because um, he interviewed 
a lot of different people and going to Brazil right there. I mean, that was huge. And I know he interviewed several people there that knew Mick. And, you know, I think he got a very good feeling and picture of him and what he was about. I mean, he was a good man and a wonderful father and provider and all of that. How do you think he would have reacted to the publication of Three Little Words? Mm-hmm. Um, I think he would see the value in it. There may be some things he might be upset about, but I don't know what. But it's, you know, it's the truth. So you can't get too upset over the truth. Just two months after spreading mixed ashes off St. Pete Beach, Jane starts coming over to the Clark's home every Monday night. Six weeks in a row, they sequester themselves in the family room with a tape recorder and Roy's questions. Then, in February 1996, paperboys start tossing the St. Petersburg Times onto doorsteps with the Morse family story splashed across its front page. Times editor Richard Bachman oversees the Three Little Words project in an unexpected reversal of roles. One of his most memorable lessons in the 70s at the University of Michigan happened to be a workshop led by a hotshot writing guru, Roy Peter Clark. That half hour with Roy, I learned more in that half hour working with him, and it helped me more in my career than anything I learned as a master's student in two years. Richard knows three little words will draw feedback from readers. It's a personal story and, at the time, a controversial topic. But he's more nervous about the format, 29 days focused on one story. Would people stick with it? Would they connect with Jane? They ran, I want to say it was a full entire page of letters to the editor. And every single one of them was negative. Every single one was like, uh, you know, I'm canceling my subscription. I've been a reader for 30 years and I can't believe how, you know, you've turned into a tabloid and this and that. And I remember thinking like, Every letter is negative. I can't believe this. I mean, I knew we were going to have people that weren't going to like it. But I just could not believe that it was like, you know, where was the positive letter? Next time on the final episode of Three Little Words. The great pain in the lives of many gay and lesbian people, transgender people, is not uh, rejection by strangers. It's uh, rejection by loved ones. Well, it's not like, a, you know, my sister went out and told them, oh, I'm not gay or, oh, I'm a heterosexual. So why do I feel the need to, to explain myself like that? Am I glad it happened? Hell no. But yet on the other hand, it made me determined. Three Little Words was reported, written, and produced by me, Austin Fast. The original Three Little Words series was conceived and written by Roy Peter Clark in 1996 with editing from Richard Bachman. Podcast script supervision came from Joshua Gillen and Maria Carrillo. Music was provided by Artlist. Thanks to HIV.gov for use of archival audio in this episode. To read the original series online, flip through Roy's reporting archives, and see additional photos and audio content, visit tampabay.com slash three little words. Catch all five episodes of Three Little Words wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like the series, please rate and review us. Thanks for listening.
when you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.